This is Jim Pruitt, and you listen to another episode of the Farm So Hard podcast. So I farm so hard, employees want to find me, and then want to hire me. What's 100K to a guy like me? Could you please remind me? Farm so hard, this ain't easy. Working late nights, you best believe me. My grades can only go ace. Never want to see another B unless I'm Jay-Z. Farm so hard, What's that's good, Pimps? Your host, Jim Pruitt, a.k.a. Farm Dinner Easy, and I'm bringing you another episode of the Farm So Hard podcast. And today, guys, I have another special episode and something that all of us can use. Anyone that's in acute care, in ED, in ICU, and even more important, if you're in a neuro ICU, this is going to be very special. And anytime I have a neurocritical care question, I bring on the experts. And today I have Andy Webb with us, and he's going to be a phenomenal guest, and he's super smart. You guys have seen him on the PACU as well. So again, I'm super excited to have, have you back. Uh, any, anything you can tell us about again, where you're pra- currently practicing, tell us about your, your, your background for those who haven't met you before. Yeah. So thanks again, Jim, for having me on the podcast. Super excited to be here. Super excited to talk about this topic. I think, like you said, this is super relevant. There's a lot of really pharmacy heavy things that we could be involved in the patient, the care of these patients. So definitely excited to talk about this. So to tell the kind of audience a little bit about myself. Um, so I'm currently a neurocritical care clinical pharmacist at Massachusetts General Hospital. Uh, so I kind of take care of the neuro ICU, which is a 22 bed unit at MGH with is staffed by neurointensivists, neurocritical care fellows, NPs, APPs, residents, the kind of whole spectrum of care. And I'm pretty heavily involved in the whole kind of paradigm of care throughout that. Uh, in terms of my background, I grew up in Rhode Island, a little small town in Rhode Island, went to undergrad and pharmacy school at the University of Rhode Island, ultimately did PGY1 at Mayo Clinic and then PGY2 in critical care at Oregon Health and Science University, which is where I finished my training before coming over to MGH. So I've been here for a little over a year now, been having a really great time and I'm super excited to kind of be here with you. Ah, thank you, man. Again, thank you for, for coming on and sparing some time. I think the audience, they don't know how how challenging it was to get this episode together <laughs> and how the universe is trying to pull us apart. But we yeah. don't form a little bit. We don't form, you know, medium. We form so hard and we made it happen. So That's right. uh, super excited to get on. But before we jump into the episode, guys, we're going to be talking about a review of the HA 2022 guidelines for the management of patients with spontaneous intracerebral hemorrhage. So not some of the other things as our students probably get commonly messed up with, not traumatic and things of that nature. This is going to be for spontaneous uh, intracerebral hemorrhage. But before we jump in, a few notes for you guys. Again, for those of you guys that's been, been with us within the PACU, we just celebrated our one-year anniversary. Super excited for that. For those of you guys who have been rocking with us on Farm So Hard, we are now three years in the game. And for the, the OGs of my content, those who have been on Pharmacy Friday Pearls, we just celebrated four years of our, 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 our blog and our newsletter going out to you guys. So super excited about that. Um, from the podcast, we've been you know really expanding. We, we're now over 150,000 downloads over the last year. Our Pharmacy Pearls is now in over uh, 37 countries. So this is something that I'm like super excited for. And PACU's really, really grown tremendously. And we're going to have a few new products for you guys going towards the beginning of the year. So for you guys that are rocking with us on, on that end, stay tuned for it. If you haven't heard of these things before, Check us out in the show notes uh, on any of our websites. They're all linked together so you can find more information about those things. But let's take a quick pause and transition to the episode. Hey, guys, just want to give you guys a quick moment to know about the challenge that we have going on for you guys. This is going to be three days of acute care questions that you guys can answer on your own time. There'll be time quizzes. If you want to learn more about this, this new clinical skills competition that's really for everyone, nurses, pharmacists, PAs, MPs, uh, students, 
Everyone is invited to participate in a challenge. I don't want to take too much of your time up, but go over to the show notes and click on the challenge to figure out more about what we have going on. Signups are now and will close at noon on November 17th. All right, Andy. So for let's go ahead and kind of take take things back before we dive too deep into the guidelines. Can you give us an overview of ICH and really go into what are some of the risk factors and uh, in, in, in these severity scores? So some of the background information about intracerebral hemorrhage. Yeah, definitely. And I think this is an important place to kind of start because at least from my perspective, especially in neurocritical care, so much of the kind of pharmacotherapeutics that we have to put into these disease states to try to take the best care of our patients really get down to understanding the pathophys of the disease. So I think it's important to kind of take a step back and understand exactly what's going on. So ICH or intracerebral hemorrhage, I'll call it ICH throughout the rest of the episode, uh, is the second most common type of stroke in the United States. So there are just around 800,000 strokes every year. And of those 800,000, around 10% of those are uh, intracerebral hemorrhage. It's unfortunately also the most deadly subgroup of stroke as well, with somewhere around 20 to 40% of incident cases experiencing short-term mortality within the first 30 days after the bleed. Now, mortality does seem to be declining over time, with some more recent data showing that mortality is probably closer to that 20%, or it's more like 30 to 40% in the earlier part of the 2000s. But the unfortunate part is that unlike ischemic stroke, there really isn't any targeted directed therapy to really improve outcomes in these patients. So there's lots of individual things that we can kind of put together to take the best supportive care of these patients. And those things altogether have been shown to improve outcomes. But unlike, you know, Alteplase or any of the individual therapies for ischemic stroke, we're really still investigating the best way to take care of these patients. And there's a lot of things in clinical trials to try to really target, trying to improve the outcomes in terms of a distinct therapy. But kind of to talk a little bit more about the pathophys of ICH, um, I think the first thing to understand is it's an arterial bleed, right? So if you have your brain, there are all these cerebral arteries which are kind of coursing through that, that brain. And an ICH is a rupture of one of those arteries. Now, uh, there are kind of different locations throughout the brain in which that rupture can happen. It can be within the lobe of the brain, say like the frontal, parietal, temporal lobe, which have tend to call those lobar bleeds. And commonly there's also deep bleeds. So these t- things that happen in the thalamus, the brain stem, kind of deep within the, the core structures of the brain. And then there's also brains or bleeds within the cerebellum, which kind of outside of that core kind of tentorial space of the brain. Uh, But all of them, from a symptoms perspective, generally seem to present pretty similarly to the same way that you would expect kind of an ischemic stroke to present. So it's the kind of things like focal weakness, focal neurologic deficits. And so this is kind of the main reason why if everybody's familiar with a code stroke in the ED, we're rushing them to the CT scan to see if there is a bleed because the presentation is so similar to that of what ischemic strokes look like. There are a couple of things if you're kind of in the ED and you're evaluating one of these patients to kind of clue you into maybe this is more likely a bleed than an ischemic stroke. Those kind of key things would be like progressive symptoms, if there's like an associated headache, if there's particularly prevalent hypertension, like, you know, if there's systolics from the 200s, 220s, or if they're comatose, those are things that might lead you more to think this could be a bleed versus something that's primarily ischemic. But obviously that kind of initial head CT is going to answer that question for you. And so kind of thinking about why these happen, I think really gets to a lot of the kind of therapies that we have available to these patients. So, so you ask kind of about major risk factors. And primarily speaking, the risk factors for ICH are largely all vascular risk factors. So hypertension, 
being by far and away the strongest predictor of intracranial hemorrhage or ICH. So basically what happens with longstanding hypertension is particularly in the deep vessels of your brain, the, the arteries which perforate your brainstem, your thalamus, those deep core structures of your brain, basically the high blood pressures within those vessels forces proteins into the walls of the blood vessel walls. That's called arterial sclerosis. And over time with surges of blood pressure, because those blood vessels get kind of rigid, they are at risk of rupturing and that's what ends up causing that bleed. And so kind of by far and away, consistent blood pressure control is kind of the best thing to do to prevent ICH, but uncontrolled blood pressure over the long periods of time is definitely the most kind of potent risk factor for intracranial hemorrhage. There is like another bucket of kind of a major risk factor for intracranial hemorrhage, and that would be cerebral amyloid angiopathy or CAA. Uh, So this is a little bit different than uh, hypertension, but in some ways it's a little bit similar where rather than uh, proteins being forced into the vessel wall and the deep structures of the brain, cerebral amyloid angiopathy angiopathy is where these amyloid proteins basically get forced into the vessels within the lobar parts of your brain. So this is in think of your, your major intracranial arteries. And so these bleeds are tend to be lobar. They tend to be in the major lobes of your brain but are also driven by the kind of rigid nature of the vessels, ultimately rupturing, typically in the setting of hypertension as well, which causes that bleeding episode to happen. And so those two things, hypertension and CAA, probably make up the majority of what we would call primary ICHs. There's also kind of secondary ICHs, which are ICHs caused by other things like a tumor or um, like an uh, arterial venous malformation or it could be a bleed secondary to a a cerebral venous sinus thrombosis. Those would all be secondary bleeds that are kind of separate from the primary pathophysiology of ICH. So really like blood pressure and CAA being the really number two thing, one and two for risk factors. And so the next thing that like once somebody kind of presents with this bleed, whether that's from hypertension, from CAA, or say they have anticoagulation plus one of those other things, the next question they ask is kind of risk scores. And so there's tons and tons of these risk scores that have looked at how to stratify whether or not a patient is going to do well. And probably the one that most people are most familiar with is the ICH score. Um, So the ICH score was a score that was developed in the early 2000s, really as a way to help kind of clinicians communicate with each other about what the severity of a presentation looked like. Um, So the individual components of the ICH score were what their initial GCS was, how old they were, how large the bleed was, whether there was a kind of extension into the ventricular space, and whether or not it was a cerebellar bleed, an infratemporal bleed, essentially. And as you kind of added up all of those things, the score ranged from zero to six, and the score predicted 30-day mortality, or I should say was kind of an attempt to associate with 30-day mortality, with higher scores having found a higher likelihood of mortality. And so this was probably the like most potent or early score that was used to try to how to communicate with how severe these patients were. Uh, and I think it's important to kind of recognize that the, for this particular score, the ICH score, it really was only intended primarily for research purposes or for kind of communicating the intensity of the bleed. It was never supposed to be used prognostically. And unfortunately, it's kind of through interpretation of the study and kind of um, broad utilization of this score. You know, if somebody comes in with an ICH score of five, the ICH score paper would say they would have a 100% 30-day mortality rate. But 
that's not necessarily true in all cases. And if you end up kind of having this self-fulfilling prophecy of like, oh, well, the score says they're going to die, and then you kind of change their goals of care, then that kind of fulfills the self-fulfilling prophecy. So I think that's one kind of caveat to the ICH score is that it's very useful in kind of classifying the severity of a score, but shouldn't be used prognostically or to kind of communicate with family members of how kind of severe what the kind of outcomes are going to be. So that's kind of one caveat with that. There is kind of another score that at least we use fairly regularly here at MGH called the FUNK score. And I kind of personally like the FUNK score because it kind of twists it a little bit where instead of focusing on the likelihood of mortality, uh, the FUNK score looks at things that predict someone's likelihood to be functionally independent after they have their bleed. So a little bit more granular, a little bit more patient-centered in terms of something that can really help the care team as well as families understand what the kind of long-term prognosis of what their functional status is going to be. And so there's kind of similar individual components of this, where it's the volume of the score, the age, the location of the bleed, whether or not the patient had any pre-existing cognitive impairment. And uh, basically, the, the higher the score, the more likely they are to kind of return to their functional baseline, the lower the score, the lower likelihood of that. So it's kind of another spin on things that doesn't have quite that same risk of the kind of self-fulfilling prophecy that the ICH score has. So yeah, I think that's kind of like a broad summary of the kind of overall pathophys and kind of what goes into the bleeds. And that kind of also drives a lot of what we end up doing for these patients as well. Absolutely. I think that was a good overview, again, especially to, to capture some people who don't see this as much or talk about it as much. I think one of the things I, I have to kind of remind myself is that when you're practicing at these very large tertiary quaternary centers, you, you see these patients and you practice in very specific units. You see a lot of these cases that many people don't. Um, these My small community sister hospitals are not seeing a significant volume of these or have any patients long enough to really appreciate the entire pathophysiology and some of the, the scoring tools that are going on to this, where I may get three or four of these, you know, in a, in a day. And yeah. <laughs> these these yeah. are three or four of your patients every day, yep. you know, that exactly. you're managing chronically. So I, I, I love to go back and talk about some of those components. And when I'm starting to give topic discussions, especially for my, my API and PGY1 students, I always start with the guidelines. And- mm. I personally think that for the last two or three years, guidelines have just gotten better, better in quality, I would say. And it's, it has more common sense to some of these things. I'm, yeah, I'm yeah. starting to feel over a variety of different acute care topics. And when I, and, and it has increased readability. I don't know if that's a word or if that's something that's, you know, serious, but it has increased readability. And these new ICH guidelines have been something that I thought it was okay. I can actually sit down and and ingest this in, in a mm-hmm. sitting versus others where I'm like, oh my god, this yeah. is horrible. So uh, most of us are going to be talking about the 2022, you know, ICH guidelines for spontaneous uh, hemorrhage. Can, can you describe just the major areas that this guideline touch on, particularly for for us as pharmacists? Yeah, definitely. And I, I definitely agree that the readability of this guideline is, is amazing because I think one issue with a lot of these subspecialty guidelines is they assume that you already know a whole bunch about the disease state and it's really hard to kind of pick up from ground zero. But I think this guideline does a great job of introducing the core concepts and then also telling you kind of why the, the thing that we do the things that we do. Um, so to kind of talk about the overarching things that the guideline talks about. So I think it's kind of nice. One of the readable things about the guideline is right up front, they kind of give you 10 
key takeaway points that kind of go over the 10 key areas that they're going to talk about. Not all of them are super relevant to the day-to-day operations of a pharmacist, but there's pretty much something good for everybody in there in every single section of the guideline. Um, So I think the first thing that they talk about is how systems of care are critical for good stroke care. And this is something that is really important for pharmacists. So kind of one of the overarching things they talk about is how basically protocolization and making sure that you have clear instructions on whose role is what and who's doing where, when, and all these different things, that having that all set in stone up front leads to better outcomes. And I think pharmacists are in a really strong position to kind of fill a role in that planning process of helping to develop those policies, develop those workflows, make sure meds are available. So the guidelines kind of first focus on that particular aspect. The next couple parts of the guideline go over some of the kind of pathophysiologic underpinnings of the disease. So they talk about how the hematoma size and the hematoma expansion are two key kind of variables within ICH care that affect whether or not somebody's going to have a poor outcome or not. And additionally, thou kind of better understanding of the underlying pathophysiology will hopefully drive some of our future therapeutics down the line. Then the next kind of group of things that the guidelines talk about is really the direct pharmacotherapy aspect of things. So blood pressure control being a huge aspect of this guideline. There are several updates to the 2022 guidelines from the prior guidelines that really set in stone some more objective and hard recommendations on how to manage blood pressure in these patients. Additionally, they have several recommendations on coagulopathy management. This is obviously a large topic for pharmacists to be knowledgeable about in terms of reversal of anticoagulation, which agent to use, as well as several ancillary therapies as well. So the guidelines talk about tranexamic acid, which is certainly a a drug that's near and dear to many pharmacists' heart. Uh, They talk about Novo7, which is a factor product that maybe is phased out of care a little bit these days, as well as how to handle antiplatelet reversal as well. Additionally, there are some other areas that are not necessarily directly related to us, like who may or may not be a candidate for surgery or who may not may or not be a candidate for kind of minimally invasive surgical practices. This is kind of an area where pharmacists could be involved because several of these involve direct installation of alteplase within the brain, which can be scary for certain individuals. And then the last kind of sections of the guideline really talk about the rehabilitation aspect of ICH. I mean, one thing I'm going to talk about a little later is kind of understanding the trajectory of these patients is really important when you're taking care of them in the acute phase, because oftentimes in the first 24 to 72 hours of an ICH patient's care, um, you know, their exam can be very poor. They can, they're oftentimes very critically ill and it can be hard to kind of see on the bright side of what the future of these patients may look like. And the guidelines, I think, do a great job about talking about the power of high quality rehabilitation, the power of caregivers being involved in the patient's care, and basically just highlighting that many of these patients do get better with time and really setting them up for success early is what's going to help them succeed in the long run. So those are kind of like the general state of what the guidelines go over in like those 10 key bullets that they highlight in the beginning of the guideline. Yeah, and I think that's one of the things I'm really starting to appreciate this. Uh, I, I call it this up to date like uh, setup yeah. for us. We get the yeah. summaries first and then you can kind of go straight from there. So I always appreciate that before we go into it, because it really lets me know if I'm going to continue to read it. It's an abstract <laughs> of the of the guidelines, so to say. Yeah. Uh, the big thing for me is that when I read this, I said, OK, there's a few things in here I'm going to really have to digest and make sure. And I think. For me, some of the, the bigger areas that are part of my day to day is going to be blood pressure management. I think everyone agrees with that. The re- reversal strategies, um, some osmotherapies as well, if that's something. And then just hitting on some of these other 
again, agents that we've talked about before that were kind of hot topics. The, the reversal is really the, the big one. But yeah. the biggest surprise to me was the, not I wouldn't say a huge shift, but a change in terminology with the blood pressure management. Yeah. Um, I definitely want to go into that. And what, what, what it means to me, because I was actually informed by this type of language from uh, um, actually MSL. And mm-hmm. I started to notice that just that slight change in terminology could change the way we manage these patients. And um, there's some new blood pressure concepts going on. So let, let's can we kind of dive into that? Can you discuss the recommendations on blood pressure management and in this new ICH guidelines? Yeah, definitely. And I, I definitely agree that there is a, a little bit of a shift in focus, which I think for people who are kind of in the space is not a surprise, but I think for people who are, you know, just keeping up with the guidelines, trying to stay up to date, it was a little bit surprising where the very first recommendation that came out of the guideline was that blood pressure variability yeah. was the key target for improving outcomes. So I think in the prior guideline, you know, at that point, Interact 2 had come out and we kind of understood that lowering patients' blood pressure in the acute phase was probably the strongest thing that we could do to reduce the risk of hematoma expansion. And reducing hematoma expansion was kind of thought to be what was driving improving outcomes in ICH care. So if you think about, you know, somebody who comes in with an ICH, they have really high blood pressures initially, and that systolic blood pressure, that pressure which kind of correlates with the sheer force against the vessel wall, your ventricle kind of cranking blood out every single time the heart beats, you know, that really high blood pressure is what likely drove the rupture in the artery and what is driving expansion of the bleeding. And so bringing that blood pressure down, particularly the systolic blood pressure was thought to be what would be the most potent thing to kind of improve outcomes long-term. And generally speaking, as we'll talk about in a minute, that was found to be true. Um, But what was really found subsequently is that it was the variation in the control that was maybe even more of a potent uh, predictor of outcomes than the actual target number itself. And so this concept of blood pressure variability is a little bit abstract. You know, the guidelines kind of say limit variation, but it's kind of hard to pin a number to that. And really where this recommendation came from was a handful of post hoc analyses of those two major uh, trials that kind of guide our blood pressure management. So that'd be interact to and attach to. And essentially what they found was that the more patients' blood pressure fluctuated over that first 24-hour period and beyond, the worse those patients did. So there's actually a handful of really interesting post-hoc analyses where they basically looked at the individual measurements. And it was interesting, there's only like a handful of measurements that they had in these patients. So for Interact 2, they got a blood pressure management at hour one, a blood pressure management at hour six, 12, 18, and 24. So it was really only like five measurements. And then the daily blood pressures over the next couple of days. But even within those just handful of measurements, when the uh, the standard deviation of blood pressure really exceeded like 10 millimeters of mercury across that first 24-hour phase, there was like a linear association with worse functional outcomes. The odds of somebody having poorer functional outcomes at 90 days was significantly higher. There are really more fluctuations that you have in their blood pressure, which is what really drove the recommendation in this particular guideline. So that kind of maintaining smooth blood pressure control. And I think as we'll kind of talk about in a minute, that will hopefully kind of guide the agents that you choose to try to have things that are shorter acting, more easily titratable, don't have quite as like much variability in their effect uh, to kind of really target that value. Now, the one tricky thing with this is while this is like a great conceptual recommendation, there really isn't like a hard and fast operational number for you to target. You can't put in your nicardipine order 
limit the standard deviation of blood pressure to 10 millimeters of mercury, right? So I think at this point, while we kind of understand from a kind of pathophysiology perspective that variability is bad, there's still some work to be done about what that like actually means at the bedside, other than us just kind of like looking back at our patients and saying like, oh, the ones who had a lot of variability tended to do poorly. We don't quite know how to quantify that variability to a point that it might be actually helpful to the clinicians taking care of the patients at the bedside. Yeah. And that's a big component. I'm just thinking about it. Like, man, that sounds great in on paper, but the biggest right. thing is like, how do I make sure this doesn't happen when depending on what agent I have, I can have the at the same dose and it can kind of go all around. The the biggest issue that I have is telling my nurses, Hey, listen, we don't have to titrate every three or four minutes. The right. order doesn't say that. And you're like, but, but I read the new guidelines. I'm like, I know, but we, we, let's have more of a conversation. So I, right. I think in that part, it gets a little bit more intriguing for me. Uh, but you mentioned that this kind of is going to really push you to where you want to go. But before I, I would say this, before we get into that part, there's some other recommendations in there that I really want you to touch on when they, they give some, it was a few more surprises for the, the average person in, in those blood pressure recommendations. Yeah, definitely. So I think that after you kind of get past the variability piece, then the next key piece they talk about is early blood pressure control. Yeah. So I think in the uh, last guideline said, they kind of talk about like, oh yeah, it's probably a good idea to target 140, but there were kind of wishy-washy recommendations on exactly at what point you should be hitting that target. And really the, these guidelines updated that to say like within two hours of them showing up to the door, yeah. you should basically have them at your goal. And that goal should probably be 140 for most patients. Uh, and so the, the guidelines do kind of caveat that with several kind of basically following the inclusion and exclusion criteria of the, um, the two trials, the so kind of showing in patients who have mild to moderate ICH with systolic blood pressures presenting between 150 and 220, so on and so forth. Those are the patients that you should really be targeting 140 within a range of like 130 to 150. So you don't have to like religiously try to hit that exact number. But really trying to get to that number as fast as you reasonably can is one of the kind of additional new recommendations, because essentially what they found was that because blood pressure reducing the risk of hematoma expansion is what is presumed to be driving the functional outcome benefit of blood pressure control. And patients are at the highest risk of hematoma expansion really within the first two to six hours of their bleed. Really early control is presumed to be what's the most likely to kind of drive benefits. And kind of additionally driving that early control is that even if you aren't necessarily hitting an exact target of 140, at least dropping the blood pressure by about 20 millimeters of mercury in the first hour and maintaining at that level, even that alone would be associated with a positive outcomes. So there's a post hoc of the interact trial, which basically showed that for each 10 millimeters of mercury, you decrease the systolic blood pressure in that hyperacute period. There's a 10% reduction in the risk of having a poor or modified Rankin scale at 90 days and a 10% reduction in the risk of death or disability. So even if you're not necessarily hitting you know, the target of 140, say if somebody comes in at a blood pressure of 300, which I've seen before, <laughs> uh, you're not going to feasibly get that person down to 140 in two hours. But even if you can drop them by 20, within the first two hours, that small change alone and just consistently trying to get to that level is what's been shown to kind of be beneficial from a functional outcomes perspective. Then the next part after that is really honing in on the population that's most likely to benefit from targeting 140. Uh, and then the subsequent recommendations kind of say like, in the absence of not strictly following that patient population, it's probably reasonable to get down there, but there's still kind of 
unanswered questions about large bleeds, severe bleeds, bleeds in patients who kind of present comatose, and all these additional kind of caveats of who may or may not benefit from acute blood pressure lowering. Yeah, this is this is great because I'm starting to feel like we one of the issues I had is like we we, we have these recommendations to a broad spectrum of people and you, yeah. you you're you're made to force your own interpretation. And from these guidelines, it's like these are the people right here. They're like, these are the people. Uh, if they're over here and they're mild um, and their blood pressure is, you know, not as bad, dropping it too much may be harmful. Um, yes. That was something I really appreciated as well. And then letting, letting people know that there may not be, you know, a, a clear cut in a certain population as well. Uh, the people going for the cranies, people going for some of these procedures, we may not necessarily know and we're going to stick to this probably, but I think at least people understanding that because I, the issue that I have with a lot of medicine is that sometimes we do a lot of black and white things in this gray world. <laughs> and, yeah, and I think yeah, at least exactly. it lets us know we, we have that. So for me, when I read these, it it really changed my approach in the acute phase a little bit. Again, some of the things I wanted to do, but it really drove me to be a little bit more aggressive and it actually made me think about changing some of the agents that I use, but I want to hear from your, your side, what pharmacologic agents are you using in your practice and, and why? Yeah. So I think it, this is always the kind of the, the age old question of which, which drug is best. And I think even before we get to like the continuous infusions, which would be in my land of the ICU, I think oftentimes in the ED, this is the most challenging decision is to make because not every ICH patient requires an ICU admission. And so not every ICH patient requires a continuous infusion. Uh, and so I think when I'm thinking about early control of blood pressure, say if somebody comes into the ED with a small ICH, their blood pressure is in the 160 to the 170s, they probably don't need to be hooked up to an icardipine drip, mm-hmm. but they probably do need something to at least acutely lower their blood pressure. So kind of upfront, some, you know, IV labetalol is probably going to be the standard for me. Um, hydralazine oftentimes comes up as the alternative IV push agent. And as, as kind of, well, as it works, I do think it has a couple of limitations that um, some people should really think about when they're reaching for that. Uh, so I think the, the first thing with hydralazine gets to the variability aspect, right? So if the strongest recommendation we do have, even if it is 2A, it's not like a 1A recommendation, is to limit variability. Hydralazine, like by definition, is the most variable <laughs> blood pressure that we have. So I think we've all seen somebody's blood pressure not budge to 20 milligrams of IV hydralazine. And we've also seen somebody's blood pressure tank to five milligrams of IV hydralazine. So it can be really difficult to predict what response someone's going to have. So that's kind of one piece where, you know, hydralazine might get you where you need to go, but you're kind of rolling the dice a little bit with giving it. But the other piece that sometimes make me nervous, especially with the slightly more severe bleeds, as well as the bleeds in the posterior portion of your brain. So somebody who comes in with a cerebellar bleed, those bleeds are highly likely to, or if they do expand, they often will expand towards the brainstem. And so the kind of consequence of expansion of a cerebellar bleed can be quite devastating. And hydralazine, as well as other nitrates as venodilators can have, they do have the risk of increasing intracranial pressure. And especially in those patients who kind of already have tight brain space, I try to avoid anything that might tip them over the edge. Okay. So if somebody really is at risk of, you know, needing an EBT or needing surgical decompression, uh, the blood pressure agent I'm going to kind of reach for first is probably going to be labetalol if I can get away with an IV push, but I'll definitely kind of reach more closely for the continuous infusion 
uh, calcium channel blockers in those kinds of patients as well. So obviously the next question is going to be nicardipine versus clavidipine. Uh, And ultimately, in my opinion, at the kind of population level, they both work the same ultimately. So there isn't phenomenal comparative evidence between the two of them. Um, but in the few kind of retrospective studies, like there's a, there's one, uh, one big one out of Memorial Hermann, uh, there's one, another one that came out just a couple of months ago. And really when you're looking at the degree of blood pressure lowering between nicardipine and clavidipine, uh, they tend to work the same at a population level. But I do think that there are some kind of advantages to one over the other in kind of both directions. But at least in my own practice, nicardipine is generally speaking going to be the first line agent. If somebody comes up to the ICU is requiring a continuous infusion, it's relatively affordable. It's very familiar to the nursing staff and clinical uh, clinical team uh, and does get the work done. It kind of gets the job done. But there are a couple of scenarios in which I do actually prefer actually switching to clavidipine or potentially using clavidipine up front. Uh, and so, you know, we're, I think we're all familiar with nicardipine and that has reasonably fast onset. It does take about 15 minutes to really see that effect. Uh, it can be titrated every 15 to 30 minutes, so on and so forth. But the kind of key caveats of nicardipine is, especially in the presence of hepatic impairment, it can have prolonged clearance and may have kind of this tail effect where they continue to lower even after you turn it down. As well, it can also be quite a lot of volume. Oh, yeah. uh, so at least at our center, we actually do mini bag plus nicardipine vials. So we snap a 20 milligram vial of nicardipine to a small bag of NS, but at the max rate, you run through a bag of nicardipine in about an hour. And so it's a lot of work for nursing to swap out a bag of nicardipine every, what is like 75 minutes or something along those lines. So when somebody's on the max rate, they're getting a ton of volume and it's a lot of work for nursing. And I also do have at least anecdotally a subset of patients who don't seem to be able to get to goal at max rate nicardipine. And I think in those kind of specific instances, that's kind of where clavidipine really comes, at least in my experience, to play. So one, it, it, it is faster onset and faster acting. That's just objectively shown. So there's the Accelerate trial that was done you know, about a decade ago now, which shows that clavidipine is really fast. So you can start somebody on clavidipine and get them to their goal blood pressure in 10 minutes. You know, somebody comes in with a blood pressure of 180, they're at 150, 160, 50 minutes later. But the only time that that's really feasible is when somebody is standing at the pump and increasing it every 60 seconds, which just doesn't happen in clinical practice. But if you do have somebody who can kind of have that attention to titrating the infusion, it does have a, a role there. But whether or not getting somebody to goal in 10 minutes versus an hour has that much of a difference to kind of switch from nicardipine to clavidipine for that reason, I'm not really sold. But where I am sold is where somebody's not quite at goal on nicardipine. At least in my experience, because clavidipine does have a slightly higher ceiling in terms of the tolerable dosing, I have been able to kind of push people closer to their goal by switching to clavidipine and allowing us to kind of get to a higher dose range versus nicardipine. Um, And additionally, the kind of benefit there is then that they come in larger vials. And so they tend to last longer for nursing. uh, It's less volume overall. And so there are like a handful of advantages in that perspective. But generally speaking, my kind of workflow would be try labetalol. If labetalol doesn't get them there and they are still persistently high and we're kind of, they're going to come to the ICU no matter what. Nicardipine is generally speaking going to be the next agent on my list. And clavidipine is kind of a backup. And when you look at all the data, like there's a recent great systematic review by Caitlin Brown in Neurocritical Care that was published just a couple of months ago that really looked at all of these different agents. Generally speaking, they seem to work the, the same. So if you're making the decision over nicardipine versus clavidipine, it oftentimes does come down to kind of a, a patient-specific decision. 
but there are a couple of agents that I definitely would avoid. So hydralazine, you know, you can use it, you can not use it. It's, it's kind of a standard for many institutions, but I would definitely avoid uh, nitroprusside or any of the kind of continuous infusion nitrate-based blood pressure agents, mostly for that venodilation effect I mentioned previously, where you do have a risk of increasing intracranial pressure by increasing kind of venous blood volume. And there was actually a study that did compare nitroprusside to, uh, I believe it was ni uh, nicardipine. And there's actually higher mortality in the nitroprusside arm. It's a relatively small retrospective study. It's not you know, anything earth shattering, but it does kind of confirm my pre-existing bias that the nitrates are probably not the ideal agent in ICH. Although they do seem to be used with kind of some regularity and with good success in Europe. But just my own clinical experience would be to try to avoid the nitrates if you can. Perfect. Yes, that's, that's a, a decent. Oh, you had more? Oh, no, go ahead. Uh, one of the things that we mentioned some of these agents and I, I'm a big fan of libido law. And what I've noticed over over time is that I think we underdose libido law tremendously and yeah. we don't redose often. So I, even I always make a joke about the Lexicomp pharmacist, you know, yeah. people, you know, you say, oh, you can't do that. But even if you look at Lexi, it's like your initial dose. I'm fine with your, you know, five to 20 initially. But I think mm -hmm. everyone forgets the next part. And it's like you can rebolus this every 10 to 15 minutes and the dose may be increased incrementally up to 80 milligrams as needed. Yeah. We yeah. forget that. And then the, the, the max dose we usually see in 24 hours is 300 milligrams. I've right. never seen someone get close to a combine of 80 before getting frustrated. And for me in the ED, one of the things I like to call a, an ICU to ICU later kind of intervention is where if I know the only reason the patient's going to the unit is for a cardiac drip, certain yep. institutions have step downs. Um, that's fine. But I've been in certain places where a titratable drip had to go to the unit and the physician will kind of make their opinion on the location based off of that. And they say, Hey, I failed labeda law. And I'm like, your blood pressure's 80. I mean, your, your, your heart rate's 80. Yeah. Your blood pressure's not there. You've given a, 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 a you know, a super big dose of 30 of labetalol and you've given up. And I said, I just think that if we get ourselves up there, we get to a great concentration as far as in the body and we can maintain that with some, some subsequent doses after that, we'll be fine. But no one's given the 40 milligrams. Uh, no one's given these additional doses to get there. And I think that, and, and what I've seen in practice, even in some ischemic strokes, they've some studies looking at, you know, cardine versus labetalol to get to go initially. And you can save a significant amount of money, one. And two, your nursing staff will love it because it's something they can easily do. And right. for, for me, it's like, I would love to say that if I can catch 10 people who don't need to go to the unit for a cardine drip, that would be phenomenal for our, our, our hospital from a yeah. cost saving standpoint, a feasibility standpoint for our nursing staff and the patient. They don't want to go to the unit if they if, if they don't really have to. Because yeah. usually the ones that have a good GCS, um, blood pressure is mildly elevated. These are your older people who have smaller brains and they can kind of tolerate that increase in volume temporarily. And they've they've had a rough day. <laughs> they've yeah. had a rough day. So I think that that's one of my, my tricks. I always say I want to take my patient from ICU to ICU later, you know, yeah. as close <laughs> as they possibly can to going home. So I think we under we underdose. I would say under dose one, because I see people giving five milligrams of labetalol when they can start with 10 to 20, to be honest. Yep. And I also see it where we don't redose frequently enough. Well, oh, I did it an hour later. No, dude. Ten minutes later, hit them again. Hit them again. Yeah. Get them to that that place. 
And for one, you may get the goal sooner. So it clinically is better. And from a safety standpoint, you don't risk having to give all these infusions and all the other weird things that can happen once you you start to be more more aggressive. So that's my one little pearl when it comes to agents that I, I use. I keep a, a we have a premixed syringe, the 20 milligram one per, per every shift. I have a, one of those with me in yeah. my like in my, my drug bag. So it's like, again, if something happens, I know how to give that up front. And then we can play around with everything else later on. Yeah, totally agree. I think that I totally agree. The labetalol is kind of chronically underdosed. Where you know, at least the the order set at, at our shop kind of comes with like standard like five to ten Q ten minutes PRN or whatever. But it's never given that often. Yeah. It's never given at the appropriate doses. So I think that's a big education piece to be like, be comfortable. Like labetalol is shockingly well tolerated. And it's very rare you see somebody's heart rate like go into some dangerous territory by just giving a little push of labetalol. So kind of making sure you're judiciously, but appropriately aggressively dosing labetalol could definitely avoid some ICU admissions. I mean, there's tons of patients who come to the unit strictly for a nicardipine infusion, and then they get transferred to the floor 12 hours later. And that's still an ICU bed that's been yeah. taken up. So I, I agree that if we can, uh, we can avoid just one of those, that that's a huge cost savings yeah. to the hospital. And I guess the only other th- all the thoughts I had, I, I'm starting to look at, you know, different, comp- different agents I would add. And I think initially when I first saw this, Asked myself, okay, I know it was there that one paper out there that said that clavidopine may have a better blood pressure variability than some of the other agents. And it yep. just it made me for once consider, okay, if cost wasn't the issue, I'm like, would I consider using it using clavidopine more so? And I had to sit back and I honestly ask myself because I know that's a it's a large part of our of our, our role is you know managing care from a you know a, a standpoint where if the agents are equal in efficacy. Then that's the case. And I'm, I'm starting to think that maybe in the next time this guidelines come out and if the, the cost of these agents are similar, uh, I, I may consider some some different some different things. And I think we're headed in that direction. And I think it's a conversation that people need to think about now because I can see there being a potential role, especially if more studies come out saying this variability is yeah. really a bigger thing versus the absolute number. So I'm, I'm intrigued by that. Any, any thoughts? Yeah, no, I totally agree. And I think like conceptually speaking, that cardipine should have better blood pressure variability. I think the challenge does get to just operationally how often it does get titrated. Um, So I, there's only been a handful of studies that have really compared head to head micardipine versus clavidipine. Uh, And I think there's two of them that uh, report variability between the two of them. One says clavidipine is better and one says micardipine is better. So I think the jury's a little bit still out in like, clinical practice, which one is actually better from a variability perspective, but theoretically clavidipine should knock the socks off nicardipine simply because you do have the capability of changing the dose essentially every 60 seconds and seeing a response with each individual titration. It just gets down to whether or not somebody's actually available to do that. Uh, So I think in the perfect scenario, if somebody does have like huge, like I've, you know, I've had patients who are hypersensitive to even the most minute changes of any drug that we make from a blood pressure perspective. And in that patient, we're really closely titrating that actual infusion. Clavidipine does have a, a probably a big advantage there and that you can make those very small single milligram changes fairly rapidly uh, to kind of get them into the sweet spot of that's controlling their blood pressure. But yeah, the cost thing is always tricky. And I, I think that, you know, as time goes on, hopefully the cost of both, both of them will kind of equilibrate. But I, I agree that the the cost differential, at least in the most recent study that came out of AJHP, was, it's, it's quite large between yeah. the two of them. So it can be 
pretty difficult for some smaller hospitals who maybe don't are, are quite as well resourced to even justify having it on formulary at all. Cause that slight incremental advantage of being able to maybe get their blood pressure down slightly faster really doesn't justify the large increase in cost in many hospitals. Perfect. So that was, that's a big, that's one of the big parts. And I think the most controversial aspect of this guideline and any, I think for the next 10 years, anything that touches this into I believe this the newer agent come out. I can't even pronounce the, the, the generic name Zero of it yet. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Once that come out, if it does what it says, it's gonna be. I think it's gonna it's gonna be a very rude awakening for most people in the market. But yeah. Anti quite reversal was, was big in here, and it had some very intriguing things to say. And uh, can we just touch on that? And uh, again, we can kind of go down the same pathway from an anticoagulant standpoint. They've also had some things in there from an antiplatelet component. I think most of us in these bigger centers are starting to see and do a little bit more with those as well. So I want to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah. So I think that this topic could be an hour long podcast on its own. Right. Uh, so I think the bottom line is that any anticoagulation that's on board should be reversed. I think that is like something that everybody, no matter what camp you find yourself in, can agree on is that uh, kind of unilaterally somebody who comes in with an ICH, if they are on anticoagulation, the likelihood is that they will do worse than if they have not been on anticoagulation. So we should kind of do everything that we can to help reverse that coagulopathy. I think one additional thing that I always like to tell my learners is that um, anticoagulation doesn't cause bleeds. Yeah, It just makes bleeds worse. So I think that's one thing that some people kind of get tripped up on is that if somebody starts a DOAC, it's not the DOAC causing the bleeding. It's just that they were probably at risk for that in the first place. But in any case, the guidelines do kind of talk quite a bit about the pros and cons of the individual reversal agents for uh, all of the different anticoagulants out there. So I think like the simplest one to start with would be warfarin. Uh, I think we're all pretty much on the same page as to what we should be doing for warfarin associated ICHs. And that is four factor PCC and vitamin K. Uh, And so, you know, maybe 10 years ago, there was debate about whether or not FFP had a role in reversing warfarin in the setting of an ICH. And there have been numerous studies now, especially with the INCH study, which specifically looked at this, which shows that PCCs are hands down superior to fresh frozen plasma in the setting of intracranial hemorrhage, both from getting your INR down to goal in a timely fashion, not flooding them with an enormous amount of volume of FFP and potentially having superior clinical outcomes as well. The INCH study, you know, it's too small to really show this definitively, but kind of a trend towards superior uh, functional outcomes as well. So I think that's kind of like the bottom line with warfarin. The one thing that was kind of nice to see that the guidelines did mention is they did actually have a mention of fixed dose, K-Centra or four-factor PCC, I should say, uh, in the setting of warfarin reversal. And basically the guidelines, I think appropriately so kind of said there's not quite enough data for them to make a conclusive argument for or against fixed dose, but they did kind of say that there is this growing uh, body of evidence that may support using a flat dose of say 1500 units and maybe potentially supplementing Uh, if they're not quite at goal. So that's kind of the way that we approach it here at my center. So if somebody comes in with a warfarin associated ICH, we're going to give them a flat dose of 1500 units of K-Centra. We'll check an INR in 30 minutes. And if they're not below 1.4, then we'll kind of supplement them with what the remainder of the weight-based dose is. But almost always people hit their goal with the fixed dose. It's really just a handful of patients who don't quite get there. So Hopefully for most people, that's kind of like a said and done K-Centra, vitamin K. Don't forget the vitamin K, of course, for warfarin. The, uh, the next thing is, you know, dabigatran. Uh, I think the clinical use of dabigatran is probably declining. So this isn't quite as relevant as maybe it was back in like 2011. Uh, but iterocizumab, you know, at least from what evidence we do have, seems to do what it's supposed to do. 
Uh, and so, you know, if you do have somebody who comes in with uh, Dabika Trend Associated ICH, that should be the agent you should reach for. If that is something that's not on formulary, your individual center, they're all sorts of kind of adjunctive therapies that you could offer. You, know, you could potentially give PCC, you could potentially dialyze them if they are kind of within the first hour or two of taking the dose, it's bound by activated charcoal. But by and large, edricizumab is going to be the best thing that we have to offer for these patients. Yeah. But the real meat of the discussion gets to factor 10A associated ICHs. And it was kind of interesting the way that the guidelines approached this. So the guidelines really did uh, open up the discussion for both andexanet alpha as well as four-factor PCC. And I think one thing that kind of was contentious amongst many people who are reading the guidelines initially is the strength of the recommendation. Yeah. So Indexinet was given a 2A recommendation and four-factor PCC was given a 2B recommendation. And ultimately, at least in my opinion, it does kind of make a little bit of sense strictly from a quality of the evidence perspective where no matter what qualms you have with the next of four, it was a prospective well-designed study. So just from a strict quality of the evidence perspective, a next of four is kind of higher on that pyramid, which is probably largely what drove that change in recommendation. Uh, but there was definitely, you know, not any preference in one way or the other, but the guidelines kind of basically said either of them probably does what it's supposed to do, right? Indexinet has a targeted mechanism of reversing DOAX or factor 10 inhibitor specifically, Four-factor PCCs, at least in clinical experience, seem to reverse uh, anti-10A inhibitors as well. And so the, the quality of the evidence comparatively really just is not there yet to definitively say whether one or the other should be used. And I think like kind of what we were talking about with the formulary perspective with clavidipine, this kind of gets to that same question where, you know, you talk about indexinate alpha of being a targeted mechanism of, you know, a specific decoy factor 10, so on and so forth. So it makes sense from a pharmacologic perspective. It's also the only FDA approved agent which oftentimes can kind of throw an additional variable to PNT discussions. And the Inexa 4 study as, you know, various criticisms that you could potentially make about it did demonstrate that it seemed to do what it was supposed to do. So in patients who came in with, uh, factor 10A inhibitor associated bleed, particularly excluding the patients who were the least likely to do well. So large bleeds, patients who are comatose, those going to surgery, a lot of the really highest risk patients. And so a fairly highly selected group of patients and Dexanet achieved hemostatic efficacy. The bleeds tended to not expand. Uh, and I think that's an important finding of kind of showing that it is doing what it's supposed to do. I think the interesting sub findings of an exa being that the correlation with reversal of anti-10A activity was only very weakly associated with chemostatic efficacy, specifically in the ICH population. The kind of like rebound effect that some people talk about in an exafor, about the end of the infusion, anti-10A activity seemed to go up almost immediately. That does kind of color a lot of people's interpretation of how well it works, but it does seem to do what it's supposed to do. And on the flip side, for four-factor PCC, the evidence there is largely, you know, in vitro. So there's several in vitro studies that show it seems to reverse the coagulation effects of factor 10 inhibitors. And then the large clinical experience studies that have come out. So, you know, FIX ICH, which was a study driven by pharmacists and the Neurocritical Care Society, showed that it had relatively similar effectiveness to indexinet alpha, uh, kind of in that similar design, just retrospectively instead of prospectively. But really all of the head-to-head -head studies that have looked at these two agents are really, really difficult to interpret. 
Uh, and so they're either single center and very small. And so that is essentially difficult to make any conclusive statements about whether one works better than the other, because say there's only 50 patients included in the entire study. Or two, there are these large kind of registry-based multi-center studies um, that often have received funding from the manufacturers. There's obviously nothing wrong with that. But there's oftentimes substantial biases that are kind of unaccounted for in these studies. So several of the really big hospital-based registry studies don't account for the fact that, you know, they show that indexa may have an edge over four-factor PCC, but they don't account for the fact that the hospitals who are most likely to have indexinate alpha on formulary are the ones who are the most well-resourced, the ones who have the most robust systems of care, and who overall are the most well-equipped to take care of these patients. It may not have had anything to do with the reversal agent at all. Uh, so until Anexa-I comes out, which is the randomized control trial comparing indexinet alpha to standard of care, which will hopefully be primarily for factor PCC, I think it's going to be an endless discussion about whether one is better than the other. Uh, and so at least in my opinion, they both seem to do what they're supposed to do. Uh, it's hard to say whether one does it any better than the other. But from a formulary perspective, I think it's totally reasonable to, you know, consider not adding indexinate to form, uh, formulary until we really do have conclusive evidence that there is a benefit other than the fact that one carries an FDA label and one doesn't. Yeah, that's the biggest point that's really been driving most of the, the discussions that for the last few years, I think everyone who's been talking about this, we mentioned the price tag and we mentioned the study. And, you know, I, I think it's one of the things that I, I think back to now is that it's very easy to criticize a, a RCT because there's certain yep. things you, you have, you're expecting Versus observational, there's certain things we, we there's certain liberties we're like, okay, well, this is what they had and this is what we found, so it's it's fine. Um, I think I'm still in the ball camp, and as, as you mentioned, until I have great data or even I shouldn't say great, um, if, if acceptable. I have, <laughs> if I have an acceptable data that compares the agents in the manner in which we use them, because I can see something happening to where we say. Or we're going to use fixed dose Kcentra compared to Indexa, yeah. but the fixed the fixed dose actually it's like 500 units compared to like the 1500 yeah, units. Exactly, yeah. Something that way. But if I can find something that, that says that I'm completely on board um, with it, especially if it says it's better. Um, right. If I can find something that says it's better, I can I can get on board with that. But at this point, um, I know people say that the costs have reduced tremendously, um, but that even with the cost reduction, to my knowledge, is still at least three to four times as expensive as uh, the dose of K-Centra that we will use or four-factor PCC. Um, mm. It's it just a it's definitely a formulary decision and something that should be revisited very often. Uh, even if you add it to your formulary, uh, you, it's something that we should revisit because I'm predicting that those who use index are not using it in the manner in which it was studied. Uh, these, right. these patients will go to surgery. These patients right. will be sick. These patients will be the ones that were excluded. So I, I want to see how people are utilizing in, in the real world. And what, is the VTE there? Are these other components that are there? These, is the mortality any different? Even if I don't think these agents impact mortality, to be honest with you. Um, yeah. But I, it's something that makes me intrigued. So it's not. It's, it's definitely a discussion. I think every conference that I do, that anyone do, do in this space is going to talk about it every single conference yep. with any new data that comes out. And we had a few a few studies that are worth talking about um, that people will probably end up seeing at Empower <laughs> once we do our conference again. So yeah. it's de- definitely intriguing. I guess in my practice, we're doing fixed dose for your for for your vitamin K's and we're we're still messing around with a, a range of uh, weight based dosing for our DOACs at this point. 
Um, what, 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 what about you? Yeah. So Andexanet Alpha is the formulary agent for factor 10 inhibitors at our center, but we often, or not often, occasionally do have kind of a patient by patient specific decision as to whether or not we're going to offer PCCs. And so our workflow is kind of requiring hematology discussion about what's potentially the best uh, agent for this patient and somebody who doesn't like fit the clear Andexanet guideline. But if we do do a four-factor PCC for a DOAC, it's almost always going to be kind of the full weight-based yeah. dose of 50 units per kilo, uh, max of like 5,000 units or something along those lines. Uh, but it, it does actually happen pretty infrequently that we don't give Indexa. But to your point, I, I'm really interested in the kind of subsequent studies that come out about the real world use, because at least in my experience, the patients who do end up getting Indexanet Alpha would not have been included in Nexa 4. They're almost always going to neurosurgery. They're almost always very severely ill patients. Uh, and it does seem to be this kind of like Hail Mary of we're going to try everything that we possibly can to uh, kind of improve the care of this patient. Uh, and whether or not we can extrapolate the findings of an Nexa 4 to that patient, I think is really yet to be found. So uh, it'll be interesting to see what Anexa I shows that should come out, I think in 2024. So we still have a little ways away before that gets published, but I think there's a lot of things that are going to be going into that study, which will be interesting. So, you know, it'll be interesting to see differences in blood pressure control. I think one thing that um, there've been a couple of studies that have come out that have tried to compare, you know, the findings of an exa four to prior registry studies of case central use and DOAC reversal. And ultimately it's what they're actually comparing is contemporary ICH care in 2018 to ICH care in 2011. And we've, changed a lot over the last 10 years. And any difference in outcomes may simply be due to that particular variable that they didn't account for. Uh, so hopefully an XI will kind of help answer a lot of those questions. And additionally, to your point of actually looking at functional outcomes and whether or not reversal does really change the course of that particular um, trajectory. Because as of yet, they're really that we don't, that data particularly does not exist. You know, we all agree that anticoagulation should be reversed, but the kind of definitive, measurable change in outcomes that that has is still a little bit hard and a little bit murky to really nail down. I think the next eye will be really, really beneficial to definitively answer that question. Unless Sarah Parentag can swoop in and save the day. Yeah, that's going to be intriguing. Take it all away. I just, so for complete, I, I think everyone's on board with reversing your heparins with, with protamine. And the next yeah. step, I, I kind of wanted to ask your, your thoughts on, because again, a lot of this is not done in the ED. I've asked about it, and usually it's a conversation about antiplatelet-related um, hemorrhage, and yeah. what what conversations do we have? Again, it's, a, it's not as straightforward, I would say, from my team, whether they want to reverse those things now, and what options do we have when it comes to antiplatelet uh, management? Yeah, great question. And I, and I think that this ultimately gets down to the, the subsequent question about what are we going to be doing about the bleed. And so um, in, if somebody comes in with a spontaneous ICH and they're taking aspirin or pitagrel or tacagrel or what have you, um, the next question really should be, is this person going to go to the OR? And I think that is the decision point as to whether or not you're going to actively do something about the antiplatelet. Um, so one of the things that the guidelines do talk about is really dissecting some of the findings of the PATCH trial. Yeah. So the PATCH trial is an RCT, which basically randomized patients who are on primarily aspirin with some clopidogrel uh, with spontaneous ICHs to receive basically either one or two units of platelets as a reversal of the antiplatelet agent. And what they found was that platelets actually worsened outcomes. So patients were more likely to die. They were more likely to have poor functional status at 90 days. 
But the kind of key caveat is that none of these patients went to surgery. Uh, this was a strictly spontaneous, medically managed ICH population. Uh, and so the caveat that many surgeons will have is that, well, we can't operate under these kind of um, conditions. And so if we're going to do anything to try to save this bleed from a surgical perspective, we need to have hemostasis in that perspective. So the guidelines do kind of like caveat that if somebody is going to surgery, uh, reversal of an antiplatelet with platelet transfusion is reasonable, but also caveating that with there's very little data to say that that does or does not impact outcomes. Um, now, I think one kind of interesting caveat that I think some people may miss in the guidelines, as well as kind of understanding how uh, antiplatelets, the different antiplatelets work, is that platelet transfusions will have no impact on ticagrelor and its, um, anti, its antiplatelet activity. Oh, so yeah. if you think about how aspirin, clopidogrel, prasugrel are all irreversible, kind of uh, covalently bind to the PTY12 receptor, ticagrelor is not. It's that uh, allosteric binding site off to the side. And so if you give somebody a fresh pool of platelets, the ticagrelor is just as likely to dissociate from the current platelet they're on and just bind to the new one. Yeah. And so uh, one thing is that if you do have somebody who's going to the OR and neurosurgery or another operative team is asking for reversal, um, a platelet transfusion is not going to reverse ticagrelor. Now, there is a reversal agent in the works. So bentrasumab is currently undergoing clinical trials. And there was a, a study that was published just a couple of months ago, basically showing that much like Idorucizumab and many of these monoclonal antibodies, it seems to do what it's supposed to do. It binds to the drug and reduces the platelet or increases platelet reactivity. So I think that'll be in the pipe as to whether or not somebody needs to be reversed from a ticagrelor perspective. But platelet transfusions, not the way to go in somebody who is on ticagrelor. But kind of the next question is DDAVP. And this is another thing the guidelines don't go too much in depth into. And I personally am still a bit on the fence as to whether or not DDAVP has a role in these patients. And so, you know, as you're probably familiar, all the data in DDAVP and these intracranial bleeds is largely in the trauma population. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of, you know, recruiting as much von Willebrand factor as you can from the functional platelets that are out there and give this kind of whopping dose of 0.3 or 0.4 uh, mics per kilo of DDAVP to try to make sure the platelets are as sticky as possible. And at least in my opinion, the data is just not quite there to roll that out into routine practice. But there have been a handful of cases where, again, we have somebody who say, is getting prepped for the OR, we gave them a unit of platelets, their bleed continued to expand, and we're really trying to optimize them as much as possible. And that might be where I could consider giving a dose of DDAVP. My personal practice is to stick with the 0.3 mics per kilo. There is like some early evidence from the 80s that there might actually be a falling off of the von Willebrand response when you give higher doses. Okay. But I think that there's probably some more data that needs to come out to really just solidify that practice. Perfect. Again, I know that this is a ton of stuff for people when, when I think about it, but it's just like overall we're thinking, okay, blood pressure management, that's going to be big. Reverse what you can. What you use is what you got, really. It's going to be the big thing, and it seems like antiplatelet. We're, we're not really there yet when it yeah. comes to non-operative uh, platelet administration or, yep. you know, it's kind of a... A toss up right now with the data that we have when it comes to using uh, decimal present for these non-operative or even operative that fail uh, traditional antiplatelet therapy that are going to the OR. So those those are the big things for that. I don't want to get too much into this. I don't think that we've had a significant amount of change when it came to um, like osmotherapy and things of that nature. But I just want to mention: if, is there anything in here you want to touch on when it comes to just osmotherapy? Yeah, I think there is one thing that I do want to kind of point out in the guidelines that I found kind of interesting is there was one particular recommendation that I've actually had a couple of people get caught up on. 
And the guidelines specifically say that prophylactic mannitol may be associated with worse outcomes in ICH, or at least doesn't have a benefit in ICH. And I think that that particular wording can be a little bit confusing. And so what the guidelines really are referring to is basically somebody coming in with an ICH and you just starting standing mannitol right away without any signs of increase in intracranial pressure. And that's really what they're referring to, that having no role in therapy. It's not saying that mannitol itself is necessarily you know, bad or not beneficial in ICH. It's just basically being selective about the agents, the, the patients that you give hyperosmolars to is really what they're getting at. And again, the difference between you know, salty versus sweet is another topic that could be talked about forever and ever. And I, I do find it kind of comical, the number, just the, the sheer number of low quality studies looking at this. <laughs> it's the, you know, there's one uh, meta-analysis that the guidelines cite that includes 34 studies. And the largest sample size of the 34 studies is like a hundred patients. Yeah. Just insane. Yeah. The number of relative, like small retrospective studies have looked at this and by and large, the end kind of result of this is if somebody has signs of intracranial, increased intracranial pressure, so they've got, you know, decreased mental status or like a new neuro change, or they're exhibiting like a Cushing's triad, you should give them some hyperosmolar therapy. I think that data kind of slightly favors hypertonic saline. There's like that signal that hypertonic saline may be better and may have like worse or uh, a lower rate of rebound cerebral edema. Yeah. Really either is probably reasonable. And the, the NCS cerebral edema guidelines would support that as well. They kind of use whatever you have available in somebody who presents with cerebral edema but definitely don't just start somebody on hyperosmolar therapy empirically if they don't have signs of that up front. Yeah, that's the big thing I want to kind of get to in that component is where, you know, I, I, I used to be a lot more um, opinionated until I started looking at these studies. I'm like, there's 15 people. Yeah. <laughs> there's 20 people. Unreal. And right. I, I always was very critical of the, the COVID data. And I, I would say it was COVID quality. And yeah. when you start going back and looking at these studies from the 70s and the 80s and, yep. you know, people did what they had to do. But I, I would like to just I, I go back and I say the reason I give hypertonics because it is the for me, it's the quickest thing that I can minister that my team is yep. very comfortable with. And I know that when it comes to the adverse effects standpoint, I'm not going to drop someone's blood pressure in the ED. Uh, that, that's really my go-to, but I'm not, I used to be a lot more like, ah, you guys want mannitol. But now I'm, <laughs> I, I think I'm like, you know, it may yeah, be beneficial. Yeah. I think I did an episode with, um, with Morgan Jones out, out of Memphis and he, he went through it. And I, I left out of that thinking like, Hmm, I guess I'm just not as, I'm not as sold on anything anymore. Right. Um, so I, I feel much better about that. Uh, next yeah, thing, the, the one thing that uh, at least at our center that we do do is we allow for peripheral 23%. Oh, yes. So we have premixed 30cc 23% syringes. So from an ease of administration perspective, that is oftentimes our go-to simply because it's the most available, the fastest to give. We uh, One of our prior PGY2, Sean O'Brien, has actually published our safety data of pushing 23% peripherally over two minutes, and it's largely very well tolerated. Yeah. So I think in the, as the years go by, if you can't like quickly place an IO or something along those lines, uh, peripheral 23% is going to be the way to go in those kind of acute uh, herniation syndromes. Uh, I'm intrigued to see, because I remember that paper, like the, as soon as it came out, I was like, oh, crap, because I had just got asked a DI question on it. And I'm thinking, I'm, let's put it this way. We know certain stuff is being done yeah. at the bedside, but we don't have data to prove it. And I was like, I noticed it happened a lot. Uh, my yeah. big one is like the administration of push those um, TXA. Like yeah. everyone's like, oh my God, you have to put in a hundred CC bag. And I'm like, 
Okay. Like, I know that's not happening. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I know it's been pushed a lot. And this is another thing that I was, you know, talking to a lot of my neurocritical care, you know, pharmacists. And I'm, I, I know that they push a bullet. That was just everyone's pushing the bullet. So I'm happy mm. when it first came. I was like, oh, God, thank you. Now this is here. Yeah. And for me, I think this is the next step for my practice is having some of these premixes down there to give the bullet. Because, again, it does save me access because. For the most part, in our associations in the ED, when I'm there, I'm managing a significant amount of these medications. And for yep. me, I have I have two access. I have a lot going on. It will be phenomenal for me to administer something over a few minutes versus for me to have a 30-minute infusion. And it yes, makes our neurocritical care fellows much happier knowing that that is in there. So yeah. it's something that I, I want to look at. Um, so that's the big thing from that standpoint. I mentioned in here DVT prophylaxis. I also want to mention um, seizure prophylaxis as well. Yeah, just kind of a kind of a, a one-two talk on those before we can kind of uh, close things out for tonight. Yeah, totally. So I think that the DVT prophylaxis is like a classic question, and the guidelines are actually <clears throat> I, excuse me pretty clear that you know they sh- patients should be on DVT prophylaxis. That you know pneumo boots or compression stockings alone is not sufficient for DVT prophylaxis. But the timing is one of those things that the exact number of hours that you need to wait is going to be debated forever. But at least in our practice, as well as what's supported by the data and what's supported by the guidelines, is that roughly 24 to 48 hours after the bleed has been shown to be stable, you're safe to initiate DVT prophylaxis. So it's one of those questions that really is never going to be definitively answered unless there's like an RCT to head to head what time you start. But there's been a lot of these large retrospective studies that show that, you know, relatively early 24 to 48 hour initiation of DVT prophylaxis is perfectly safe. The window of hematoma expansion really largely ends at 24 hours. Obviously, late expansion certainly can happen, but that's what really drives that early initiation at the 24 hour mark is when it's totally fine to start your Lovenox or your heparin for DVT prophylaxis. Perfect. And then the next thing that I think that raised my eyebrow a little, at least a little bit was the seizure prophylaxis uh, recommendations. Yeah. Any thoughts on that? Yeah. So it, this is an interesting thing because the guidelines came out and then the PEACH trial came out like three <laughs> months later, which is kind of threw another wrench into this. So I think the the bottom line recommendation for seizure prophylaxis and ICH is that there's just really no clear indication for it. Um, so obviously, if someone seizes, you should treat it. I think we can all agree on that. Uh, but unlike in traumatic brain injury, where we've kind of definitively shown that for the first seven days in a subset of patients who are at high risk of seizure, there is benefit for prophylaxing, that has not been demonstrated in ICH. And so there have been a couple of studies, you know, early ones done with phenytoin, then maybe subsequent ones on uh, levetiracetam, then it's still a little bit too up in the air as to whether or not seizure prophylaxis has any hard and fast indication. But one of the things the guidelines do talk about is that if you were to choose, if you were, you know, a center that does do prophylaxis, that phenytoin may be associated with worse cognitive outcomes long-term. So that levetiracetam is probably their preferred agent. And this is like particularly important to kind of keep in mind with the results of the PEACH trial, which came out just a couple of months ago. So the PEACH trial is a super interesting study that is like a great journal club worthy article that basically randomized relatively small group of patients with primary ICH to either levetiracetam seizure prophylaxis for six months or nothing at all. And what they found was that electrographically levetiracetam reduced the incidence of electrographic seizures. Uh, But this is kind of a challenging result to put into context because there were significant baseline differences between the levetiracetam and placebo arm. The kind of treatment protocol was a little bit unusual in terms of the length of the prophylaxis. 
And the rate of clinical seizures, the ones that we would like kind of traditionally think to be worried about really was not significantly different between the two arms. It was just those electrographically captured, you know, ictal episodes that was reduced with levetiracetam. And what was, I think, particularly important in the PEACH trial, if you look into the supplement, once they adjust for all of the baseline differences, they adjust for the size of the bleed, the location of the bleed, all of these different things, the kind of confidence in that levetiracetam had any effect at all completely went away. The confidence intervals were enormous and there was really no conclusive kind of kind of conclusion that you could make about whether levetiracetam had any effect. I think the jury is still out essentially, but you know, I think the PEACH trial itself will prompt a much larger trial that hopefully will come out in the next couple of years. But in current state, there's not nearly enough for uh, us to say you definitely should give prophylaxis to these patients. Perfect. And that was a bit of a big thing. I, I think when, when these things come out, you know, everyone is either on you know, the rapid adopters or they want to wait and kind of see how things work out. When I first saw it, I was like, oh, OK, so this is not a thing. But I was like, I said, really, I said, Jimmy, even even if we had great data saying this is not a thing we do anymore, how many years is it going to take for our entire colleagues to get on board? You yeah. know, at a big center like, you know, MGH, I think it's something that's one thing. But even then, there's going to be a transition period to where people are like, ah, First, first, not trusting the recommendation, even if it's right. great um, guidance. Now, with not so great guidance and having these interesting, you know, caveats like the peach trial, it makes you say, if if people want to do it, I, I'm not certain that prophylaxis with Kepra causes harm. Right. Um, if they if they don't, the guidelines kind of can help them from that standpoint. So right. it's definitely intriguing when it comes for for prophylaxis and. DVT prophylaxis and for seizure prophylaxis, and it's just usually a conversation I have. And I think sometimes my my uh, when my neurocritical care colleagues come down, they get confused why I'm asking them because I'm like, it's not the same for all of you. They're like, it's not. I say like, the data is not there. If you want yeah. to, you can. If you don't want to, you can. And I think the, the longer I get into practice, the more I realize certain simple questions actually have a lot more value. Um, yeah, asking someone whether they want to do something or not because the data once you look at all of it you then become just a little jaded. I would say jaded or you, you just come to where you're not going to push anything. And I have this bucket for recommendations. I say, I have this, like, I'm going to recommend this every time, like calcium right. in a patient that's bleeding, that's getting a, a ton of blood. That's what I'm going to yeah. do. But like TXA in that same bleeding patient, Hey, do you have a tag? You know, it's kind of that gray bucket right. versus the the bucket. I say, you, you, you can't do this. So it's, it's, it's really intriguing. I would say when it comes to these, these recommendations. Yeah, no, I totally agree. And I think that like the, the PEACH trial is interesting because it really changes you know, how we think about some of these events where a lot of the prior studies looked strictly at one way of defining a seizure. And this is like, well, we can get a little bit more nuanced with that. And I think that really gets to your point of like, it's not a one size fit all kind of thing. And so once we kind of really define like what sort of electrographic seizure activity really matters and is there something that we can do to target that? I think that's where we're going to kind of come and really selecting who we do or don't consider for prophylaxis down the road. Perfect. So I don't I don't want to hold you for too much longer. And, and a big question I have, and we hear all this information, what should clinicians do with this information at this time? What would if, if you can make it to where you and a person guiding every pharmacist in the ED and ICUs throughout, when it comes to this information, what are some key things you want people to do with this information at this time? Yeah, I mean, I think the one thing that these guidelines really kind of set up nicely, which I kind of talked about at the beginning, is the importance of protocolization. And I think that this guideline in particular has a lot of almost like objective metrics of things that you want to accomplish 
in the care of these patients. And like I talked about, I think pharmacists are really well kind of positioned to play a big role in setting up the care of these patients for success across the entire kind of institution that you're working at. And so by kind of internalizing, you know, how should we approach blood pressure management? How should we approach coagulopathy management? How should we approach this or that? Obviously, as you're an, as an individual clinician, you should be kind of applying those principles at the bedside. But even in a larger perspective is making sure everybody that you're working with is also similarly on the same page. And so with every kind of update of a huge guideline, like an AHA, ICH guideline, it really provides an opportunity for everybody to look at the current state of things. Like, what are we currently doing to take care of these patients? And is there an opportunity for us to improve? Are there, is there an opportunity for us to identify gaps in our care that we can really try to match the standards of the guideline in 2022? You know, it's, I think we've all kind of probably had that guideline that's posted on your policy website that hasn't been updated since 2014. And everybody's like, well, that's how we do things based on the guideline. And I think that this sort of a big publication is really an impetus for to, to empower a pharmacist to say like, hey, like it's, t- it's time to update. Like I have got new things that we should be shooting for. And so, you know, pharmacists are obviously instrumental in providing those recommendations and guiding care at the bedside, especially in the emergency department and the ICU. But getting everybody on board from physicians to nurses to RTs to social work, really everybody in between of being on the same page with the same objectives in a protocolized and systematic way, that sort of thing is probably way more beneficial and way more impactful than hitting a blood pressure of 140 at two hours, having kind of everybody in it and on the same page with the same goals. That's the best thing that a pharmacist can really do to have that big systems level impact at your individual institutions. Perfect. And I think this is a big thing is I think now one of the things that I, I look at now, I, I tell my resident, I say a recommendation is great, but a, but a protocol is powerful. Um, yeah. I think early in your career, you want to get that recommendation. You want to do it over and over again. But if you're making the same recommendation yeah. every day, <laughs> you're ooh, not there 24 yeah. seven. So it's like, there's gotta be a get, point where they've got to, they've got to fly on their own. Yeah, fall through the cracks. So I think just making protocols are, are something that pharmacists are again well positioned to do. And I think we have a sp- unique training and knowledge and background, especially those that's been, that's been, been in doing this in, in the clinical space for a second is we get to see all of it. We get, we understand the medication component com- a lot, but I think our training allows us to understand the entire diagnostic component and we see these patients very often. So we gather data from that standpoint as well. So we understand what our providers are ordering. We understand the labs. We understand the nursing workflow. So I, I, I think this is another guideline, as you mentioned, that can easily be transitioned. And I think about FT generation a lot. And I say, okay, what are some metrics that the C suite want to see that pharmacists help? Ta da! Right. <laughs> this is definitely yeah. a few of those. So um, definitely, definitely intrigued by this. A powerful guideline. Again, very readable. Uh, I'm probably going to make a few graphics out of this and, and put some stuff out there. But, but before we close out for today, Andy, again, thank you for coming on. But any final thoughts or comments about this or anything in, in, in your space right now? Yeah, I think the one thing I kind of wanted to close out with is uh, especially for individuals who are primarily in the ED, primarily in the ICU, Kind of like I touched upon in the earlier part of the podcast is the long-term trajectory of these patients can be really hard to see in the acute phase. Uh, And there's a really awesome study that came out in JAMA Neurology just a couple of months ago, really looking at the more long-term, what these patients look like at a year. And I think understanding the context of how these patients do can really help reinforce the importance of the work that we're doing at the bedside in the acute phases. And basically what the authors did is they pooled the findings of the CLEAR-3 trial and the MISTI-3 trial, 
for basically two trials and very critically ill patients with large bleeds who are going for either surgery or some sort of invasive intervention and trying to improve their bleed. And what they essentially found, the kind of bottom line of this study, is that, you know, at 90 days or 180 days, where we typically look at in the clinical trial setting, the patients generally had a pretty heavy burden of disability. But over time, when you looked at them at a year, a year plus, a lot of these patients do end up getting better. They do have a much higher rate of being independent, of maybe going back to work, being more functional in society. I think one thing I just want to want to highlight is that, especially for individuals who are kind of taking care of these patients at the bedside when they first come into the ED and they look really, really sick and you're really wondering about what the prognosis of this patient is going to be. These patients, even though they look really bad in the first couple of weeks of their care, do get better over time, which really just kind of highlights how important it is for us to have really high quality supportive care, really high quality interventions early on in that patient's care, really set them up for success long-term. Perfect. And I think that's one big thing. And all, I think, neuroprognostication is that way as well. I I tell my providers the same thing, even for cardiac arrest, you know, we we shouldn't be getting that initial CT to prognosticate them from a neuro standpoint. It's a lot more to go into it. I'm pretty sure you're involved in the brain death consults and things of that nature. It's a lot. And I... I try to keep an optimistic view because, again, unfortunately, we see a ton of patients. Some of it make it make it upstairs. Some of it don't make it upstairs. Right. Um, and I think it's pretty unique that when you start thinking about a year in, in, from the energy that people may actually do a lot better. It's a little bit more hopeful. Again, we just yeah. see so much volume of, you know, especially in the centers that we see and we practice in. So I'm definitely um, thankful for that. And again, thankful for you coming on and for you guys yeah. that, that are listening to this episode. It's been a, a really good one. I think it hits a lot of different things and it's really kind of a core concept. So uh, I make this uh, a, a, a listening for everyone from a topic discussion standpoint on ICH. I think it's going to be key if you can read the guideline and listen to this episode. I think it's going to be really big from there. Um, but I'm closing out today, guys. It's just a few things I want to mention for you guys that haven't heard, our, our Empower Conference have partnered with SAEM. So we're actually going to be doing be part of that first day, May 16th. We're going to be having the Empower Conference at SAEM. It's going to be phenomenal. So you guys that are going to be on board with that, we're going to get our first day with us. And then the remainder of the time, it's going to be the same price for everything included to go to the SAEM with our physician colleagues and nursing colleagues as well. And we're going to have different little social events throughout the entire time to keep us engaged and, and going from there. This is the first step for EM pharmacy. I think most um, other specialties have done a phenomenal job. Neurocritical care have a huge pharmacy presence. Uh, SECM, huge pharmacy presence and leadership within. I think emergency medicine, we have support to a degree, but we haven't had that presence. And I think this is the first step of getting us transitioned to that that space as, as we start to identify whether or not we need, you know, a, a society of emergency medicine pharmacists. Um, so super excited about that. And for you guys that are looking for some quick pearls and things of that nature, uh, the, the space that I've created for that is our Pharmacy Friday Pearls. Again, you can look at that at pharmacy slash pearls dot org um, and just super excited with the work we're doing going into this next year and continuing to build with experts like Andy. So it's been a phenomenal time, guys. And I'm going to close out the same way I close out every episode. Uh, you don't have to be a pharmacist. You don't work in the ED, but everything you do, make sure you farm so hard. Closes it. Ozzy scratches his head. Whatever she's looking for, it isn't in there. Perfect, 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 perfect.